hot on the heels this week of one of the most successful debut albums by an American band ever comes another one. 10, Pearl Jam's debut studio album was released on August 27th, 1991, at the tail end of the summer before the term grunge would become known, and it would take a couple of hit singles in over a year for 10 to reach number two on the Billboard chart. But it did, and eventually sold more than 10 million copies. After grinding it out for several years in Seattle bands like Green River and Mother Love Bone, writes Chad Childers for Loudwire, bassist Jeff Ament and guitarist Stone Gossard could have taken a step back from playing after the death of Mother Love Bone vocalist Andrew Wood in 1990. But instead, the pair was invited by Soundgarden's Chris Cornell to pay homage to Wood in a project called Temple of the Dog. And also, during this period, they gathered themselves and decided to push on by forming a new band, one that would eventually become Pearl Jam. Rounding out the new group were guitarist Mike McCready, drummer Dave Cruzen, and a San Diego singer named Eddie Vedder, who was given a Stone Gosser demo tape by former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons and decided he liked what he heard and felt like writing some lyrics and singing over the track. Included on the demo tape was a song called Dollar Short that fans would eventually come to know as Alive. Vetter had the idea that three of the songs told a story like a mini rock opera that could be tied together, he told Rolling Stone. Quote, it's based on things that had happened, and some I imagined. Of those instrumentals, the first would become Alive, the track written by Vetter, and loosely based on the fact that he learned the man who was his stepfather wasn't his real father, and that his biological father had died. He said, quote, everybody writes about it like it's a life affirmation thing. I'm really glad about that. It's a great interpretation, but alive is, it's torture, which is why it's effed up for me, why I should probably learn how to sing another way. It would be easier. It's too much. The other two songs in the mini-opera derived from Gossard's demos were Once, a track detailing how the son couldn't deal with the betrayal and became a serial killer, and Footsteps, a track about his eventual execution. It's a modern way of dealing with bad life, Vetter told Rolling Stone. He said, I'm just glad I became a songwriter. Not long after Vetter wrote the songs and recorded over the demo, the tape made its way back to Gossard and Ament. Not long after Vetter wrote the songs and recorded over the demo, the tape made its way back to Gossard and Ament, who were blown away by what they heard. Vetter was invited to Seattle, and by the time he arrived in town, he also had the song Black that would become a future Pearl Jam favorite as well. Within a week, the fivesome of Vetter, Gossard, Ament, McCready, and Cruzen were fully clicking. The songs were flowing, and shortly after Vetter's arrival in Seattle, the band signed a record deal with Epic and entered London Bridge Studio to record their debut disc with producer Rick Perisher. Even before they hit the studio, a majority of the record was already written. Only Porch, Deep, Why Go, and Garden were written during their month-long stay at London Bridge. Reflecting on that period, McCready told Spin Magazine, quote, Ten was mostly Stone and Jeff. Me and Eddie were along for the ride at that time. But there was little doubt that Vetter's songwriting expertise helped bring the Gossard and Ament songs to life. All I really believe in is this effing moment, like right now, Vetter stated of his songwriting approach. And that actually is what the whole album talks about. Though the album was good to go, there was still one more obstacle to address before they went on to monster success. Drummer Dave Cruson entered rehab shortly after recording was completed, revealing that liquor had gotten the better of him. In an interview with Punk Glob, Cruson would reflect, quote, It was a great experience. I felt from the beginning of that band that it was something special. They had to let me go. I couldn't stop drinking, and it was causing problems. They gave me many chances, but I couldn't get it together. With Cruzen exiting, the band briefly filled the void with Matt Chamberlain, 
but he had other obligations and recommended Dave Abruzzi's, who sat behind the kit for a majority of the 10-album tour. There was also the matter of the album title. Up until they were recording the album at London Bridge Studios, Pearl Jam was known as Mookie Blaylock, as in the professional basketball player. Since calling themselves Mookie Blaylock would have possibly led to legal problems, they decided to just pay tribute to the point guard by calling their debut Album 10, which is his jersey number. On August 27, 1991, Epic released the 10 album, making Alive the lead single. The track dropped a few weeks prior to the album release and enjoyed a slow climb. With the familiar guitar opening, listeners began to take notice. And while Vetter had stated that the song was somewhat torture for him, fans interpreted it a different way, taking it as an anthem for self-empowerment. Vetter would later reveal on the band's VH1 Storytellers episode that, thanks to the fans, he was later able to view the song differently. He said they lifted the curse. The audience changed the meaning for me. As for that guitar solo, you know, the one that typically gets fans going, Mike McCready revealed in Guitar School that he was inspired by Ace Frehley's work on She and The Doors 5 to 1 when coming up with those licks. By April 1992, Pearl Jam had started gaining traction and even flow reflected that. The song would climb to number three on the mainstream rock tracks chart, and the concert-based video showcased exactly how special the band was as a live act. Oddly enough, even flow caused the band the most trouble in the studio. In Musician Magazine, Ament recalled, quote, I know it was a great song all along, and I felt that it was the best song that we got the worst take of on the first record. There were a hundred takes of that song, and we just never nailed it. McCready added, we did even flow about 50, 70 times. I swear to God it was a nightmare. We played that thing over and over until we hated each other. I still don't think Stone is satisfied with how it came out. Regardless, the song connected with listeners and became yet another key song in their ascension. Drummer Matt Cameron, who was in Soundgarden at the time, recalled to the Daily Record, When I was in Soundgarden and we were making Bad Motor Finger, Eddie brought up the mixes of 10, and I distinctly remember hearing the chorus for Even Flow and thinking, that is huge. So hooky. It's got a really rad Zeppelin huge rock feel to it. And although we've played it a couple thousand times since I've been in the group, I think that's the quintessential Pearl Jam song. Even though it gets played out, the nuts and bolts of that song are just amazing. Next up came the song that would catapult the band into the stratosphere, but also keenly affect how they would operate in the future. The track was Jeremy, which arrived in September of 1992 with a conceptual video from director Mark Pellington that was inescapable on MTV and much music. The song, inspired by a school shooting, had a highly stylized look and told a very powerful story and fittingly, took a wealth of MTV Video Music Awards, including the best video at the 1993 awards show. Speaking to Rockline, Vetter stated, quote, It came from a small paragraph in a paper, which means you kill yourself and you make a big old sacrifice and try to get your revenge, that you're going to end up with this paragraph in a newspaper, 64 degrees and cloudy in a suburban neighborhood. That's the beginning of the video, and that's the same thing in the end. It does nothing. Nothing changes. The world goes on and you're gone. The best revenge is to live on and prove yourself. Be stronger than those people, and then you can come back. But while the song helped the band reach new heights of success, it also offered a new conundrum. Speaking with Rolling Stone, Ament revealed that he had a conversation with American Music Club's Mark Eitzel, who told him, I liked your hit, but the video sucked. It ruined my vision of the song. Ten years from now, I don't want people, said Ament, to remember our songs as videos. And for a rather long period of their career, the group shied away from making music videos as a result. Fearing the success was getting to be too much, the band had some hard decisions to make. 
Though the label was hot on the song Black, the band would not relent and make a video for the song, nor would they release it as a single. Quote, some songs just aren't meant to be played between hit number two and hit number three, said Eddie Vedder. You start doing those things, you'll crush it. That's not why we wrote songs. We didn't write to make hits. But those fragile songs get crushed by the business. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't think the band wants to be a part of it. Despite not being released as a single, radio still picked up the song and it climbed to number three on the mainstream rock tracks chart. The fourth single from the record instead would be Oceans. The album was mixed with Tim Palmer on a converted farm in Dorking, England. That's a place, Dorking, England. Quote, you have to try very hard to find other human beings, but there are plenty of sheep, Palmer said of the studio's location. He's credited as playing percussion on oceans with a pepper mill as a shaker and drumsticks on a fire extinguisher. At about 30 seconds into the song, you can hear the pepper shaker on the left and the fire extinguisher on the right, he told Guitar World. It's all fairly subtle stuff, really. The reason I used those items was purely because we were so far from a music rental shop and necessity became the mother of invention or the mother-love bone of invention, if you like. Thank you. Gossard told the Daily Record that it remains one of his favorites from 10. He recalled, quote, We wrote it, we played it, and Ed sang it, which is another thing that he does. I'd never seen anyone engage with songwriting the same way. Here's the song, let me play it for you. It goes like this. Okay, there's a change here, let's do it. And he would sing it. I'd hear the melodies and I'd think, okay, he's going to write words or whatever. And then I realized later that he actually had written the words right there at the time. I couldn't understand how somebody could do that. Since then, I've met a lot of people that can do it. So it was an eye opener, but he does it better than anyone I've ever seen do it. And that relationship between Gossard and Vetter would prove to be the beginning of a very powerful musical friendship. Quote, I consider us to be very different people, said Gossard to Rolling Stone. Quote, almost polarized in a lot of ways. I mean, name any given issue, and we'll take opposite sides of it. We'll give each other the total different end of the spectrum so we can always somehow find the middle. My goal, what I really want to achieve, is not to need him, because he's needed by so many people who don't really understand him. Music critic David Frick gave the album a favorable review, saying that Pearl Jam, quote, hurdles into the mystic at warp speed. He also added that Pearl Jam, quote, rings a lot of drama out of a few declarative power chords swimming in echo. Alan Jones of Melody Maker suggested in his review of 10 that it is Vedder who, quote, provides Pearl Jam with such a uniquely compelling focus. In a less enthusiastic review for Entertainment Weekly, David Brown found Pearl Jam to be a derivative of, quote, fellow Northwestern rockers like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and the defunct Mother Love Bone, ironically enough, and felt that it, quote, goes to show that just about anything can be harnessed and packaged. NME accused Pearl Jam of, quote, trying to steal money from young alternative kids' pockets. Nirvana's Kurt Cobain angrily attacked Pearl Jam even as the two bands toured together after the album's release, claiming the band were commercial sellouts and argued 10 was not a true alternative album because it had so many prominent guitar leads. Wow. In the end, Pearl Jam reached heights they never expected with 10. Speaking to Richard Bienstock of Louder Sound, Mike McCready said, quote, I have great memories of that time, you know, going to England for the first time to mix the record at Ridge Farm Studios. Those were fun things. And just in general, recording an album and feeling the songs, knowing that we were a good band, it was the first time I was in a situation where everybody was firing on all cylinders. It was creative. It was exciting. 
And it's like, oh my God, I'm making a record for a record label. That's what I would dream about. That's why I had a room full of Kiss posters when I was a kid. And now I was part of it. And I was grateful to Jeff and Stone because they had kind of been through this process before. They knew what was going on. So I felt lucky to be in that position. The album peaked at number two on the Billboard album chart in 1992, but earned diamond status for 10 million in sales and went on to be certified 13 times platinum. The album also went to number one in Canada, where it went seven times platinum, signifying sales of 700,000 copies. And in the summer of 1992 at Gimli Motorsport Park, Pearl Jam played one of the most legendary live sets in Manitoba concert history as a headliner at Sunfest. And now, Pearl Jam's debut album, Ten, becomes our latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker.